Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles W. Chuck Bryant, and Jerry's out there lurking like an internet weirdo, and this is Stuff You Should Know. Yeah. I got a question for you. (laughs) Okay. You ever been to a Michelin-starred restaurant? Yes. I don't know if I have or not. Surely you have. I don't know. I mean, I've never sought one out. Sure. But I may have accidentally done it. Uh, yeah, it's possible. Um, there's there's a decent there's enough one star uh, restaurants out there that that is entirely possible. You've been to one. Pfft, one star. <laughs> um, actually, I've been to a three three starred restaurant once. Um, yes, well, it was for a very special occasion. Yumi's and my uh, engagement. Um, I contacted our friend Hodgman who oh. was kind enough to contact his friend Adam Sachs, who's a restaurant critic, um, who pulled some strings to get me reservations at Danielle in New York City. And it was a three-star restaurant. It was amazing. It was just totally amazing. Yeah, I think uh, – I mean, I went to uh, – Atlanta's not on, and you'll – you know, we'll go over all this in this episode, but Atlanta is not – Covered under the Michelin Guide. Right. But Which explains would, why Bacchanalia doesn't have a star. Yeah, Bacchanalia or Staple House, I could see having a star. I haven't been there. Staple House is the best meal I've ever had in my life. What kind of food? It's a tasting menu. Um, just, you like you wings know. mostly? Yeah. <laughs> wings, <laughs> ribs, other things you can taste. This sounds pretty good. Uh, it's very renowned uh, in Atlanta and around the world. Like people fly to Atlanta to go to Staple House. Huh? Uh, it's that good, and it's it's really something else. It's the best meal I've ever had, and from the food to the service and the ambiance, it was just it's a five star night, regardless of what Michelin says. <laughs> That's right. what my Yelp review is. But doesn't that say everything about Michelin that the highest yeah. honor you can get is three stars? <laughs> it's like everybody else is going with four, five. Michelin's like three tops, you know? Yeah, but as as you'll see, this was uh, their star rating came out long before the internet existed. Exactly. Um, and so uh, you you might be like Michelin. I've never heard of that guide, but there's a tire company called Michelin out there. And we are here to tell you that they are one and the same company, that the tire manufacturer is also the publisher of the world's most renowned restaurant guide <laughs> of all time. Yeah, and and once we explain it, it's like – it's one of those things that at the same time you say, oh, well, now I guess it makes sense, but also still very weird. <laughs> <laughs> it is, but it like does literally have a very... the Michelin Man is is part of this guide. The, yeah, the there's <laughs> tire you, cartoon tire man. <laughs> if you're like, oh, you know, this is pretty haughty stuff. No, one of their symbols is the Michelin Man licking his lips yeah. and making the OK symbol. <laughs> so let's all so maintain weird. a little bit of perspective here, okay? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so with the with the um, the connection to the tire company, I think it's a pretty satisfying explanation. But all the way back in, uh, what was it, the 19th century for sure, I believe, 1889, um, Andre and Edouard Michelin started 
making tires. And this is, you know, they were making bicycle tires, I believe, at first. Um, but they ended up making tires for just about everything, including trains. I did not know that there were that ever tires me. for trains. but Yeah, like rubber tires. Rubber tires for trains. Um, just had no idea that that ever existed. Maybe it was one of those things where they tried it and it failed spectacularly, but it's still worth remarking. I don't know if they're still around or not. But these guys started making tires at a really good time because um, around that time, uh, in addition to bikes, you also started to need tires for your car. And the Michelin brothers were, were there for it. Apparently, France was like one of the early hotspots of um, the auto manufacturing world around the turn of the last century. Yeah, they built more cars than anyone else between 1890 and sort of the mid to late 1940s. And uh, they sold a ton of tires. And um, the Michelin Man himself debuted in 1898, uh, which is pretty remarkable. And there was, uh, I think, uh, I think it was Dave Ruse, right? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, Dave can point you in, in uh, if you're in a place where you can look this up on the internet, um, just type in Babendum. Uh, B-I-B-E-N-D-U-M, which was the original name of the Michelin Man, which uh, comes from a Latin toast uh, attributed to Horace, uh, nuns est bibendum, now is the time to drink. Yeah. And just look up the poster, type in bibendum uh, poster 1898, and you'll see uh, what is exactly a very creepy poster of an early <laughs> Michelin tire man. It's um, it is very creepy and sort of nightmare. It is. It's like, what is wrong with all the people at the table? There's something terribly wrong with everybody. But apparently, Babendum is still his name in Europe, or Bib, yeah. affectionately. But um, so the, the Babendum uh, debuted a little actually before the time of the guide. The guide first made its uh, appearance in 1900. And the reason why the guide ever existed, as far as the Michelin company is concerned, is because they're, the Michelin brothers were looking for a way to, to um, sell more tires yeah. by getting people to drive more. And they figured, well, if we make a guidebook saying, hey, you got to check out this place in Lyon or Burgundy or Champagne um, or sparkling wine, like <laughs> all these different places in France, um, th- then they'll actually go out and take road trips to these places. And that was the, the origin of the Michelin Guide was to tell people about all these different spots and to make, you know, to let you know about them. And maybe you should go check this out. Yeah, so um – it was first given away for free when it debuted. Um, they, like you said, were just sort of listing restaurants where you could go. But right. eventually in 1926, they started recommending restaurants. And uh, in 1931 is where the star system was finally debuted, uh, which is one star, a very good restaurant in its category, uh, two stars, excellent cooking, worth a detour, or three stars, exceptional cuisine, Worth a special journey. Mm-hmm. And uh, I really think they missed a big opportunity by not rating these one to four tires. Right. Uh, instead, they did one to three stars. But uh, as Day points out, if you'll notice, what they're saying is, hey, this restaurant you should really drive to on your <laughs> Michelin tires a lot, right? <laughs> yeah. Maybe lay some rubber and do some donuts on the way. <laughs> yeah, totally. So that language is still in use today. Like those are the the current explanation for stars as well, even though the point isn't to get you to use up your tires. Um, Probably. But they do still signify the same thing where like a three-star restaurant 
to the to the Michelin, the editors of the Michelin Guide, is it's worth the trip in and of itself. Like it's worth getting in a plane and flying to a different country to eat this meal at this restaurant, and then getting on a plane and flying back. That's basically what a three star Michelin rating means. That's right. Um, the first one outside of France was in Belgium in 1904, uh, and then it kind of spread through Europe with other guides, uh, North Africa. Um, they did publish an English-language version in 1909, but it was just for France still. Um, America didn't get its first guide, and this is very surprising to me, uh, until 2005 yeah. when they uh, started their guide to New York City because, you know, they were like, the only good food in America is in New York. Yeah, yeah, and not only that, only good French restaurants are in are what is in New in New York kind and in of, America. Yeah. You know, they they took a lot of flack for that first one. Um, in its defense, they didn't they hadn't put together a team of American inspectors. They had, they had used some of their existing European inspectors to go over, and they have no idea what they're doing aside from French cuisine, apparently. So they did just basically put an American guidebook out to the best fresh French restaurants in New York. That was the first American guide. But they have since, as we'll see, like really kind of um, kept pace uh, a, a lot more since then. Yeah, they've tried to. Uh, the Modern Guide has uh, more than 40,000 restaurants in 34 countries. Uh, here in the States, you have New York. Uh, they cover the state of California and then the cities of Chicago and Washington, D.C. And that's all as far as the U.S. goes so far. Uh, and they sell these things now. They sold, um, they've sold 30 million of them over the last 100 years. Uh, and then next year, they are going to hit Moscow. Mm-hmm. Um, they have them for Tokyo, Hong Kong, uh, sort of other uh, places all over the world now, like you said, because they're trying to, I think, shed, and we'll talk more about this, but shed a little bit more of that stodgy, snooty, only French kind of thing. Right. Uh, which is why they're releasing an, a guidebook on Topeka next year as well. <laughs> oh, great. So um, – if you uh, if you open up one of these uh, Michelin guides or go online, it's all online as well too. Um, when you when you hear about um, three stars, like that must be you know a tremendous amount of detail explaining why and all that. That is not how Michelin guides work. There is a tremendous amount of work and effort and thought that's put into um, the kind of rating or symbol that a restaurant gets in the Michelin guide. But the guide itself is basically like, just trust us. Here's one star or two stars or three stars or no stars. Uh, here's a little write-up about the uh, restaurant, what you can expect, um, the chef and what the chef's known for. And in a couple of paragraphs, they they make or break a, a, a restaurant around the world. Yeah, and they have um – it's very. I mean, if you don't know anything about it and you just pop it open, like you said, there you could get confused by all the weird symbols that it uses mm-hmm. to convey their qualities. Um, we'll get into some of those in a minute, but um, the star is, you know, obviously the highest honor you can get. Um, the criteria. Uh, there are five criteria to judge um, these restaurants for stars. Uh, it's not. It's only about the food. It's not the decor. It's not the service mm-hmm. or the ambiance or where it is. It's literally just the food on the plate uh, and these five criteria, which are quality of the ingredients, uh, mastery of flavor and the cooking techniques, mm-hmm. uh, personality of the chef, um, the harmony of flavors, and then the consistency between the visits. Um, I also saw value for money. Is that not one? 
I didn't see that anywhere except in this thing that we were given. Did you okay. see that elsewhere? No, I saw that that would make much more sense for the Bib Gourmand, which we'll talk about. Yeah, I mean, this was taken uh, – I, I got mine from an interview with an actual the New inspector. Yorker one? Okay. Yeah, I missed that part. So um, when you put all those criteria together, and again, like you said, it's just – they're just talking about the food. But they're talking about the food to the point where a three-star rating means that that restaurant puts out consistently over time technically, scientifically – perfect food, mm-hmm. no matter what you order, and no matter what time of day, no matter what day of the year, no matter who you are, you're going to go in and get a perfect meal every time. That's what a three-star rating is. And there's a lot of criticism of those criteria, uh, as we'll see, but it, it really is a, um, a remarkable a remarkable thing that they're they're basically saying like this is a perfect meal no matter what you order that's that's kind of hard to find in other industries you're not just like like um you know this is a this is a perfect shoe that i'm wearing you know it, <laughs> it fits this 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 weird you know five boxes of criteria that are being checked <laughs> off no matter what what shoe what model shoe the shoe's going to be perfect no matter what, that's you don't find that everywhere else, you know. No, that's <laughs> I really love that symbol or that analogy. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so there are only 128 three stars worldwide. Uh, there are 459 two stars and uh, 2,486 one star restaurants. Uh, a man, very famous man, um, chef named Alain uh, Ducasse. How do you pronounce that? I think it's uh, Alain Ducasse. I think Uh, there's so much French in here that I'm going to murder, but um, he has the he has 36 restaurants and between them, 20 Michelin stars, including three three star restaurants, uh, which is quite an accomplishment. Um, And I think we should take a break maybe and then we'll talk about some of those more weird symbols in the guide. Uh, Does that sound good? Ooh la la. So the Michelin Guide is most well-known for the stars that it gives, right? Um, And we should say, even being mentioned in the Michelin Guide, it's not like a comprehensive listing of restaurants in New York. Yeah, like everything, yeah. It's like these are the most noteworthy restaurants in New York, and then the starred ones are the best of the most noteworthy. Um, So just being in there is is an honor. Um, But I guess it's kind of like recognition that – there are some restaurants out there that are still really good and that you should still go check out. They just don't necessarily check the the boxes of the five criteria of a perfect meal every single time, but it's still definitely worth checking out. They came up with other criteria, and they found um, the first one, I believe, uh, which it came out in 1955, was the Bib Gourmand that we, we uh, mentioned a minute ago, um, and Bib being, again, Bibendum or the Michelin Man. Um, yeah, this, this uh, is like his faves. Totally, as 
evidenced by him licking his lips. <laughs> Give me as, the OK symbol. <laughs> yeah, so um, you're right. It started in the 50s. As, uh, the original symbol is a little red R, uh, which stood for uh, R-E-P-A-S, French for meal. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to pronounce it. Repas. 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 De... <laughs> uh, but it's basically uh, Big Gourmand means good little restaurant. And it actually comes out, it's it's in, it's uh, the regular guide, but it also comes out as its own separate guide. Oh, yeah? Um, the Bib Gourmand Guide, after uh-huh. the Michelin Guide is published. And these are good quality, good value cooking. And the idea is that you can go to a Bib Gourmand restaurant and you can get uh, what they say is a three-course meal. I also saw uh, one of the inspectors say uh, like a, a main course, a dessert, and a glass of wine. But like kind of like three things for about $40 per person, yeah. uh, which they consider a good value. And that is if sure. you're talking like really, really good stuff. Um, and 3,365 restaurants uh, right now are listed as Bib Gourmands. Yeah, so it's a kind of like a, anybody can pick that up and be like, let's see where we're going to go to dinner tonight, basically, you know. Um, $40, you, could, you can drop $40 a person at like um, Outback. Pretty easily, so that that is pretty that is pretty remarkable that they. What's a blooming onion go for these days? I guarantee it's eleven or twelve bucks. Oh, you think? Sure. Let's look right now. You talk. I'm going to look up how much a blooming onion is. I gotta say, I haven't been to an Outback Steakhouse since uh, I don't know, probably two decades. But Mm -hmm. um, that blooming onion is blooming delicious. Uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Boy, and delicious. Yumi made a joke while we were on um, on the road the other day about how we should go to Outback, and I was like, "Yeah, blooming onion would be pretty good," but it turns out it was just a joke, and we didn't end up there. Mm. How's that for an anecdote? <laughs> Okay. It's good until the part where you didn't go and get one of those <laughs> blooming onions on your road trip. <laughs> right. So you can get yourself. Mm-hmm. A Bloomin' Onion for $8.99. I stand corrected. All right. That sounds about right. With tax, though, you're approaching 10 Yeah. And if you want a regular size cheese fries, it's 11 bucks. So, But you got to get some extra sauce with that Bloomin' Onion, so that probably pushes it over 10 Yeah. Unless a that's a freebie. I don't know how they gallon, work. Gallon. Gallon size. Uh, <laughs> were, you, were you thinking the Bloomin' Onion was going to make an appearance in this episode on Michelin stars? I did not. Um, I didn't either. I give that four tires, though. <laughs> All right. So uh, another symbol they have is the plate Michelin. Uh, how are you going to pronounce that in French? Uh, L'assiette. Yeah, l'assiette. That sounds about right. Okay. Uh, this is a symbol of a dinner plate uh, flanked by a knife and a fork. Mm-hmm. This debuted in 2016, and this is just good cooking. Uh, it is not. It means it doesn't have a star. It's not a bib gourmand, mm-hmm. but they they call it quote simply good food. I'm not entirely quote. sure what the distinction is between the the plate and the bib gourmand rating. I think it's but, money. Okay, so this could still be expensive, or is it cheaper than the bib gourmand? No, I, no, no. I think the bib gourmand is specifically cheap, and okay. the plate Michelin can be pricey, but just food. not good enough for a star. Just not good enough for a star. So it's like a sub-star rating, I guess. Sub-star, but uh, more expensive than 40 bucks a person. Okay. Is what um, I get. Otherwise, it would be a Bib Gourmand. They also uh, – one other way to kind of understand the Bib Gourmand is um, – we'll talk about the inspectors a little bit um, in, a, in a minute. But um, apparently, the ratings are 
they use uh, a hive mind kind of thing where they'll have different inspectors go to see what they think about an inspector's rating of a restaurant, and then they kind of pool them all together, and the the average is what the what the restaurant gets. Um, that was one explanation I saw. And by proxy, the Bib Gourmand is say like one inspector's like if you happen to be talking to a Michelin inspector and said what's your what's your real favorite restaurant in this town, they'd probably give you a Bib Gourmand recommendation. Not necessarily everyone in the Michelin organization would would agree that it deserves a star or three stars, but this one inspector's like this is really honestly the best restaurant in town. Right. And then they would take you into an alley and strangle you to death because <laughs> right. you're not supposed to know who I am. Right. Exactly. You, I'm so sorry, but you know too much. Uh, They're like uh, the talented Mr. Ripley at the end. <laughs> oh, spoiler. Uh, was it? No, it doesn't matter. Okay. Uh, you have the Green Star, which debuted just last year in 2020. That is restaurants and chefs who are practicing uh, sustainable gastronomy, mm-hmm. um, sourcing locally, reducing waste, uh, renewable energy in their restaurants. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you have the couvert or covers, uh, and that is based, I think, I mean, the food's got to be good too, but it really has to do with uh, ambiance. You can get one to five covers, mm-hmm. um, which means like if you really want to go to a like a, a special like romantic dinner or something, you might want to look under the cover section. Yeah, and and to make it even more arcane and obscure, you can have five covers, but if it's in black ink, it's Uh not as good as a few covers in red ink. Yeah, a little confusing. So if you have, if there's a place that has five covers in red ink, it's their most charming, splendid um, atmosphere of any restaurant they've ever encountered. Um, but yeah, right. it, it, it does. Surely, it has to do. It takes the food into account too. They're not going to send you to like a slop bucket that's really charming. <laughs> but they the whereas the stars are just the food. This kind of takes into account the ambiance more. Yeah, and then they started. Uh, you can see symbols for uh, different specialties in different regions. Like in Spain, they'll have a little toothpick and wine symbol for tapas. Like the best tapas places in the UK and Ireland, they'll have beer mugs. For the best pubs, mm-hmm. if you see little grape symbols, that means someone might have a really good wine list or a cocktail glass, uh, obviously for good cocktails, mm-hmm. or a sake bottle, stuff like that. So if you see all these little symbols, obviously I'm sure there's a uh, – what do you call it? a Legend? You, yeah, legend sure. that explains all this stuff. But we're here to do that for you. Yeah, from what I can tell, you have to be basically a trained Michelin inspector to decipher some of this stuff once it gets real deep, you know? Well, we've been saying this word inspector without explaining that, and people are probably going, why do they keep talking about detectives? Right. But we're not talking about detectives. We're talking about inspectors, which is their word for reviewers. Yeah, actually, I don't even think they call them. They call them um, – Anonymous restaurant. Oh, no, they do call them inspectors. I'm sorry. I misread. Um, so, what, and that makes a lot of sense, too, because there is this definite haughtiness to this whole thing. But at the same time, from what Michelin has finally started to choose to reveal about its inspectors, um, they they do seem to actually be worthy of such a kind of haughty title. Um, they are typically trained in and have like real life experience in the hospitality industry, the restaurant industry, um, hotel industry. Um, And they 
will train uh, and actually go through this kind of um, vetting process for about a year, basically. That also includes an apprenticeship because this is not the kind of thing where you can be like, oh, these are the five criteria. I totally understand this. It's a lot more (laughs) nerve-wracking than that. And also, if you ask me, the best way to lose love of food uh, would be to become a, a Michelin restaurant inspector. Because it sounds like a lot of not fun work. Yes, I would much rather just go, uh, you know, enjoy a meal at a restaurant than have to review it any day of the week. Yeah, there's a cool article I read from Forbes uh, from 2019 uh, by Carla Allendeo uh, called The Secret Life of an Anonymous Michelin Restaurant Inspector. Uh, where they talk to this uh, woman who is an inspector, and they remain anonymous even when they're interviewed, which, um, as we'll talk about in a bit, is happening a, a little bit more over the past, like, 10 to 20 years. But, um, you know, she talks about the rigors of the process and, mm. you know, how, you know, some of them are trained sommeliers, some of them were chefs, uh, but they were, they're all in the restaurant industry at some point, uh, and, they get their obviously their travel and hotel and their food all covered. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was trying to find the pay. I saw some guesses that it was maybe close to a hundred thousand dollars a year mm-hmm. uh, to eat about three hundred meals a year in these restaurants. Yeah, uh, to not be allowed to eat with your at least if you're reviewing the restaurant um, to with a spouse or any other friend. Like you're supposed to be in there alone. Mm-hmm. Um, you got to take these pictures, uh, which. Um, you know, people do that a lot now any day, so that's not going to make you stand out. But uh, the thing that I saw was that the hardest part, at least from the point of view of this one inspector, was maintaining your anonymity because mm-hmm. I think they said you're allowed to tell your closest family members, but really no one else. And in this day of social media, it's – I don't know how much of a social media presence you can even have. It'd be a giveaway if you were like, you know, in <laughs> – in New York again, ate these 10 meals out this week. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, I'm in Paris. Now I'm in Los Angeles. Now I'm in Chicago. Yeah. Now I'm in Tokyo. Like, people yeah. would kind of catch on, I think. Yeah. I, you just, yeah, I think you're supposed to just be a lot more kind of plain Jane or plain James, I guess. Never heard it put that way, but I think I just came upon something to where you're just kind of unremarkable and not really noticeable. Um, but at the same time, you're not sticking out because you're so unnoticeable and you just kind of have to live a life of anonymity, not just at work, but in general, like you're saying. like It's a bit of a grind. It sounds like a big grind, like 10 meals a day or t- <laughs> 10 <laughs> meals a week, um, very frequently, you know, lunch and dinner. And we're talking like, like you said, tasting menus or, you know, prefix menus where they're eating like multiple course meals. Um, I, I saw that that New Yorker interview with um, Maxime or M is what they they nicknamed her, um, the the Michelin inspector, and I guess they order a, as many courses as the restaurant offers. So if they have you know soup, salad, appetizer, main, pasta, dessert, like you would be expected to order a dish yeah. off of each of those courses for lunch, and then go do the same thing for dinner five days a week. Three weeks out of the month, all year long. It by does yourself. sound like a grind for sure. Yeah, for by yourself, eating by yourself is 
it can be kind of liberating and fun, but after a while, that, like, much, that is yeah. one of the loneliest things you can possibly do. And the other thing, too, is if it's if it's frowned upon for you to bring a friend or a family member, um, I guarantee it's frowned upon for you to just be sitting at your phone. So you're just sitting there like a total weirdo by yourself at dinner Enjoying paying a attention <laughs> to the salt shaker. Basically, is what you're what you're doing. Um, yeah, enjoying a world class meal. It does not sound fun to me at all. I just rather. Yep. It's just one of those things. I just rather be an everyday person and, and just enjoy it on that level. Like I feel bad for people who are so into making movies that they can't enjoy a movie anymore. It's the same exact thing. You're like, I just want to be a regular guy at a three star restaurant sitting there looking at my phone. <laughs> <laughs> right. I want to be able to be on Twitter the whole time. Uh, All right, I think we should take another break, and then we'll talk about – this all sounds rosy, but uh, we'll talk about some of the criticisms right after this. So we've talked about the um, kind of sung the praise. Well, did we sing praises? Uh, well, no, they are definitely well trained and all that. But but the the thing is, is with their the inspectors, Michelin has always been um, the the term is f- they're famously anonymous. Like they really, like you were saying, go to great lengths to hide their their people um, and their their identities. And a lot of people are like, well, who are these people? Are they actually qualified? And that's kind of caused a lot of controversy in itself. Yeah, and I I kind of more meant singing the praises of the guide itself. But um, it's all become sort of controversial over the years. And there's been a lot of criticism levied, um, like you mentioned, first of all, the inspectors. Uh, There have been some things that have come out over the years. Uh, There was a a book written by an inspector – after they left the job mm-hmm. called The Inspector Sits Down at the Table by Pascal Remy, where Pascal said, there are not nearly enough of us. There are way fewer. Um, we're not going to these restaurants as much as we should. Mm-hmm. There have been restaurants that said, hey, I was knocked down a star, and I know for a fact that no one even came into the restaurant this past year. Uh, no inspector came into our restaurant. So how do we get not back a star? Right. Uh, and there's kind of a general – I think within the industry, there's a general feeling of this thing has too much importance over and too much hold over us as chefs and as restaurateurs. And we're kind of beholden to this book. Oh, yeah. uh, To the point where people, uh, I mean, there was was one chef who took his own life, uh, Bernard, French chef Bernard Lousseau, who lost a star. He had famously said, if I ever lose my stars, I will kill myself. And uh, in 2003, that happened, and he he shot himself in the head with a shotgun. Uh, he very much was suffering from depression. So we're not saying you know this is all at the hands of the Michelin Guide, but it, it just sort of hammers home the the stress of trying to achieve and then maintain these stars. Yeah, it it goes both ways, right? Like if you don't have the stars yet and you're just starting out. You want to get them or else people are going to be like, well, I thought you were like a, an up-and-coming superstar. Where are your Michelin stars? Yeah. But then once you get them, it's like, 
it's just this albatross around your neck trying to keep them. Um, and the guy whose restaurant you, me, and I went to for our engagement, Danielle um, Boulard, I believe, mm-hmm. um, he actually took, uh, or sorry, Boulard, um, he took a kind of a, a cool attitude to the whole thing. He had three stars, and he got knocked down to two after I had been there. Um <laughs> But he he was basically like, look, you know, I mean, we make a lot of changes to our menu, and sometimes it's stuff that we want to lock in and put on the menu. Other times it's us just messing around, but our customers seem to really like it. Um, And so if if that means that we're not putting out perfect food every single time, but we're being more creative and spontaneous, I'm okay with that. Taking chances. Um, that was a very, very rare attitude from what I saw. Uh, more likely, if you lose a star, you openly weep like Gordon Ramsay did when one of his restaurants, the London in New York City, um, lost two stars. It had two stars and it lost them both from one guide to the next. And he wept. Apparently, he won't talk about it if you ask him about it. Um, that is much more the reaction to Michelin stars than than uh, Danielle's response, which is kind of like, eh, you know, I'll take it or leave it. it. It just kind of ruined your life one way or the other. And I think a lot of people in the restaurant industry really resent that this anonymous group of people whose qualifications they're not even sure of hold that kind of sway over their lives, over their entire careers, you know? Yeah, actually, now that I think of it, Emily and I stayed at the London one time, and I think we ate breakfast there. There you go. Two stars. Yeah, I'm not sure when it was as far as his stars coming and going, but uh, yeah, so we ate there. Uh, another sort of rarity was uh, in 2017 when uh, French chef Sebastien Bra said, hey, Michelin Guide, can you remove my stars mm-hmm. and, and take them out of there? And, and there's a couple of interesting quotes. He said, after 20 years under the banner of three stars, I wanted to find serenity, freedom, and independence, but... Three stars represented a form of permanent and growing tension for me. And today I only want to be accountable to my customers. Mm-hmm. So too much stress. And he was like, I want to I want to experiment and I want to try different things. And I don't want to necessarily live my or spend the rest of my career just trying to maintain these stars. Right. And by all accounts, it was a pretty liberating experience for him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um that again, that also is very rare. For the most part, it's like your your career is about trying to get and then trying to keep those stars, um, and just the the kind of the frustration that goes along with it has has made a lot of people level accusations toward the Michelin Guide, um, including that you know they hand out like that one guy's expose said that they hand out stars or maintain stars among some of their friends like very famous right. french chefs that is absolutely not fair but and there are definitely plenty of people out there um who just go to these restaurants so that they can brag about having gone to this restaurant and that probably yeah. makes up a substantial part of the the chef's clientele or the restaurant's clientele and i would guess if you're a chef in this area you probably hate people like that even though you know they're coming to your restaurant they're just being d-bags that's why they're there <laughs> is to just show off what a d-bag they are can we say that yeah and i bet you half of those people 
say like, oh, my God, what one of the best meals, and half of them say, I don't know why this thing has three stars. Average. Right, exactly, exactly, yeah. So there is that to it where people are like, there's too much sway. Are these people even like being fair about this? And then the, the star system attracts people who are just – just there to say that they ate at a restaurant and aren't actually enjoying the food. All that exists. But it really seems over the last century that the Michelin Guide has, like, it is legit. Like, if you go to a three-starred yeah. restaurant, you are probably going to have the best meal that you've ever had in your entire life. Like, that's probably true. And that in and of itself legitimizes it, or at least, you know, lends credence to the idea that generally it's a legitimate, if not crushing, um, rating system. Yeah. Um, there's been some other controversies over the years. In 2019, uh, there was a lawsuit uh, filed by French chef Marc Verat, who said, uh, my restaurant, Maison de, I don't know, how do you pronounce that last part? Not Boise, Idaho, but. Bo- I think Boise. Boise? Maison de Boise? Yes. All right, let's go with that. Uh, he was downgraded from three to two stars. He said, quote, it's worse than the loss of my parents, <laughs> which I'm sure his parents were like, merci for that. <laughs> right. Uh, and apparently the word on the street was the inspector accused the kitchen of using uh, just a very common English cheddar cheese in a souffle dish that he serves. He was, I know, sacre bleu. He was really mad. He said, I demand to see that report. Uh, Michelin says, I don't know who you think you are, but you better watch it. You're going to lose all your stars, buddy. Uh, <laughs> but you're, you can't see our reports. He filed a lawsuit. It became known as Cheddargate. Uh-huh. And then the case was thrown out when they couldn't produce evidence that it actually hurt his business. It actually <laughs> helped his business because of all of the publicity. All right. So that report thing actually struck me as surprising. I saw that they uh, will share their reports. I mean, you know. Oh, really? Yeah, they won't. They Obviously, it won't say what inspector came from or anything like that. But they that restaurants who want to improve or get a star back or whatever and want to know what happened, they they will share their reports. So I didn't understand that. Maybe what I read was was wrong. But the, the Michelin Guide has responded to this kind of like criticism and bad publicity. Um, you know, the uh, suicide of... Of, um, what was his last name? Lusso. Yeah. Uh, in 2003 was really a, a dark cloud that hung over the Michelin Guide. Um, you know, the criticism for basically rating the best French restaurants in New York in their first American Guide. Uh, all this stuff really amounted to some bad press for the Michelin Guide. And it kind of evolved in the 21st century to become a, a lot more um, worldly, a lot less Franco-centric, a lot less stuffy, and to expand. And today, actually, the country or the city with the the largest number of stars among its restaurants isn't Paris, it's Tokyo. Yeah, how about that? Or I should say Tokyo. I, I've, I've been saying it wrong, Yumi says. Oh, it's not Tokyo. Tokyo, it's, it's Tokyo. Tokyo. Yeah. I've been saying it wrong for 49, almost 50 years. Yeah, I'm catching up to you. 44 for me. Because that was my first word, actually. <laughs> yeah, little been, known fact. <laughs> I've been saying Tokyo since I was in the womb. So uh, yeah, it's it's opened up to Asia. Um, it's expanded in the U.S. market, like we mentioned before. They uh, in 2016 they awarded their first ever star to a hawker stall, mm-hmm. which is uh, Singapore street food, which is really cool. Um, it was Hong Kong soya sauce, chicken, rice, and noodle, which 
man, that thing got a star, and I just want to go there right now and eat it. Me too. Uh, the other thing I want to eat is uh, in the 2020 edition um, to Taipei, uh, they had a takeout-only street stall that has one thing on the menu, which is a steamed pork bun with ground peanuts and cilantro. Nice. Uh, they've been serving this for 60 years, and they gave that a bib gourmand um, whatever uh, – Metal or <laughs> uh, the the licking lips and okay the symbol. licking lips guy <laughs> yeah uh, I want to eat that pork bun more than anything I can think of the thing is Chuck is the the thing that I hate almost as much as waiting at a red light when there's no cars coming from the other direction <laughs> yeah is standing in line for food I hate that yeah I feel like yeah. such a chump no, such a sucker and after X number of minutes it is not worth it. It doesn't matter how good the food is. It's not worth it. Because I also usually don't like the people I'm standing in line with, <laughs> you know, like a certain kind of like food fan uh, yeah. or the kinds that will stand in line for an hour and a half. They're, they're also probably <laughs> the ones that brag about the number of stars or whatever. Um, yeah. So there's a lot I don't like about that. And it turns out Michelin has has heard my concerns and Jiro Sushi um, – the the, the uh, sushi place mm, oh, yeah. that that they did the, the the documentary about after that documentary, you could not still to this day. I think that documentary is from like two thousand nine or ten. To this day, you cannot get in to Jiro's. It's a ten seat sushi bar that's probably the best sushi in the world, um, and you just can't get in. It's sorry, TS. You have to basically be a head of state or a celebrity these days, and it was a ten seat. Three starred, three Michelin starred sushi restaurant in a train station in Tokyo, um, and Michelin took its stars back because they say the guide is meant for you know any person to be able to go to these restaurants. The restaurants they recommend anybody should be able to get into. Like yes, some people are going to spend a much more substantial portion of their annual salary than other people, but you should be able to get into this place one way or another. And with Jiro's, you just can't do that anymore. So they actually took their stars back. Wow. They said, Jiro, we wish you the best of luck. Not that you need it, but you don't need these stars and you can't really have them because you can't, the, the average person can't get a seat in your place anymore. Yeah. Um, you know what this episode has really made me want to do? Eat. Eat in a restaurant. <laughs> yes, dude. Yes. <laughs> this is very cruel to to put this one out right now in retrospect because all I want to do is eat in a restaurant. Man, so bad. Just a good multi-course meal starting out with like a, an a amazing martini or drink. <laughs> yes, a blooming onion in there somewhere. Maybe a side of ranch. I mean like, yes, I cannot wait. It will happen again one day, man. I know, for sure. Okay? Okay. Uh, well, since Chuck said for sure, that means, of course, everybody, it's time for listener mail. Uh, I'm going to call this, and we've gotten a few of these lately, but this one I tagged uh, about a month ago, from people who have uh, who finished their Stuff You Should Know journey. Nice. And listened to all the episodes. Uh, hey, everybody, I've done it. It took me two years of listening anytime I was driving. And I have to drive a lot for work, but I've finally gotten through the entire back catalog going all the way back to how Grassoline works. Wow. Those first episodes were so not Terrible. very good. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what I'll do in between new episodes now, but I wanted to say thanks for the many, many hours of learning and laughing and what has to be hundreds 
of Simpsons references. At least. Uh, my favorite episode was either Nuclear Semiotics or the uh, Dyatlov Pass Mystery. Huh. But, uh, but I need to thank Josh for introducing me to uh, Teddy the Beaver. Oh, yeah. Teddy the, the Baby Beaver. Or no, the he's baby. the one that built like the dam at the in the doorway of the bedroom, right? Oh, was that? <laughs> I think so. He was so cute. So cute. Uh, the greatest moment in the show, however, was during what I recall uh, to be the Beagle Brigade episode when Josh predicted COVID-19 <laughs> by talking about someone's getting a disease by eating a bat. Yeah. I, a lot of people say I predicted that. I, I called out a magazine article that I read that predicted it. I don't sure. know if I particularly predicted it, but thank you for that. And I don't even know if that's the uh, origin of COVID now. Isn't that sort of in dispute? I don't know. The last thing I heard was that it was either a pangolin or a bat. I've heard bat oh, okay. more than anything. You know what I'm saying? Well, you're going to the wrong websites, buddy. I guess so. You need to find the truth. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> oh, God. I'm starting uh, with cartoon sweat. He says, uh, also, sorry, Chuck, but Sharknado can suck it. Uh, I wish you know for sure, but my mind was blown away when Josh said it. Uh, thanks again for all the hard work, and I look forward to 12 more years worth of episodes. And that is from Kyle in Phoenix, Arizona, who I guess went to our live show there. He's a great live show on Kellogg, by the way. Awesome. I remember that Phoenix show. That was a good one. That was a good show. I think that's the one where we got lassos. Oh, it absolutely was. I still from, got that uh, thing. Kathy with a K. That's right. I love that lasso. Uh, well, if you want to get in touch with us, you can send us a, an email to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.